a study involving interviews of patients hospitalized for heart failure, about 62% of patients could not precisely name their precipitating symptoms, and more than 90% did not attribute these symptoms to worsening heart failure. Hi, and welcome to CV Deep Dive. In this podcast, we discuss various aspects of cardiovascular disease management and feature key insights from leading medical experts. I'm your host, Dennis Steele. In this episode, we'll be focusing on timely issues in heart failure management. Joining me in the studio today is Ava Parker. Hello, everyone. Ava recently spoke with several heart failure experts, and today she'll be discussing some highlights from her conversation with Dr. Lee Goldberg about the clinical progression of heart failure. Dr. Goldberg is Chief of the Advanced Heart Failure and Cardiac Transplant Section of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, Vice Chair of Medicine for Informatics, and Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm excited to share Dr. Goldberg's suggestions for recognizing signs of worsening disease in patients with heart failure, because these can be difficult to detect for both patients and healthcare providers. First, to provide some context for our discussion today, I want to talk a bit about the clinical course of heart failure. Heart failure is characterized by progressive decline of cardiac function and health-related quality of life. The clinical course often includes periods of decompensation that may necessitate hospitalization and accelerate progression. Is evaluation of clinical progression similar in inpatient and outpatient settings? Monitoring varies by clinical setting. Here's Dr. Goldberg with some of the key differences. In the hospital, you're oftentimes focused on you know what what triggered the the hospitalization event, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes there are, are clinical events. The patient has a new arrhythmia. They have a new ischemic event. Uh, their thyroid function has changed. So you have to be somewhat of a detective to kind of get at the etiology and kind of rule things out systematically. In the hospital, we're also interested in understanding changes from literally yesterday to today. So we're, we're diuresing someone, we're adjusting medications, and I want to know, are you feeling lightheaded, have you walked around, those kinds of things. In the outpatient area, when it's in a little bit less acute scenario, I do try to stick to my standard questions each time because this really helps me to, to look at trends. Um, and, you know, people will have good days and bad days. So the, that yesterday to today may not be so important. But over the last three months, seeing a trend is actually really important. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the outpatient setting because, as Dr. Goldberg explains, hospitalizations are often preceded by periods of disease worsening. Oftentimes, a careful history really can delineate that the heart failure has been worsening over a period of time, and it really ended up in this hospital admission, but actually the story started you know, weeks or months prior with worsening, worsening heart failure symptoms, dyspnea, exercise intolerance, etc. Throughout this episode, we'll walk through key considerations for assessing worsening and clinical progression in the outpatient setting. And we'll also discuss how providers can optimize care in response to clinical progression. So what is the first step that providers should take to assess symptoms of worsening heart failure in the clinic? 
First, patient history and physical exam should be performed at each clinic visit to assess clinical characteristics consistent with progression and to evaluate volume status and perfusion. Here's Dr. Goldberg. So you're looking for signs and symptoms of volume overload. Some of our patients will progress to the point where they develop low output symptoms, we refer to them as. These are patients whose cardiac output has fallen to the point where they're really not perfusing their organs adequately. These patients may present with very cool extremities. They may not appear very volume overloaded, uh, but their symptoms of dyspnea and fatigue really overlap with those that are, that are traditionally more volume overloaded. Um, you can see changes in appetite. Sometimes it can appear like depression, uh, where people really lose interest in things, and it's because they're, they're not well perfused or they're so exhausted uh, from sleep deprivation from, from being volume overloaded. Dr. Goldberg asks specific questions in the patient history at every visit so that he can detect changes over time. But I actually have a templated kind of uh, history that I take in all my heart failure patients. And I really ask around domains of um, exercise tolerance, um, tolerance of their medications, their weight. I ask about sleep um, and to try to get at that. And then, you know, any structured exercise or activities that they normally do. And then I assign an NYHA class at every visit, which is one of the recommended quality markers. But it is helpful to see that last time I, I for whatever reason, during that visit, I, I, I put NYHA class two, for instance, and then this visit, I'm writing MYHA class three. Um, I'm hoping that in my mind, you know, I'm calibrated to the point where uh, I'm able to say, hmm, perhaps the heart failure has worsened in that way. Now, based on the study we mentioned at the beginning, it seems like patients often have difficulty describing symptoms and associating them with worsening heart failure. They do, and patients also often delay seeking medical care when they experience worsening symptoms. Well, does this impact the type of questions that providers should ask during a clinic visit? Yes, that's a great point. Dr. Goldberg provided some key strategies for detecting worsening in the patient interview. The first is to determine whether patients have made significant alterations to their lifestyle to accommodate their symptoms. I think one trick um, that we can get tripped up on sometimes with patients is that some of our patients uh, will tend to shrink their world or their activity to their symptoms. So when you ask them, are you having any symptoms, they'll say no. And they're not, they're not telling you the, the, the full truth. They're not lying to you, but they're not telling you the full truth. But, you know, last year they were out doing gardening or yard work or they were walking the dog or doing shopping or other activities. And their world has kind of shrunk to the point where they're really in the house. They're rarely going out. And this is where having a family member or someone else in that visit can be particularly helpful because they may be honest, I'm not having a lot of shortness of breath during the day. They're also not doing much during the day. Dr. Goldberg also asks specific questions regarding daily activities to assess changes in functional capacity. You can drill down even even deeper and say, you know, are they able to dress themselves and shower? You know, do they after they take a shower, do they have to actually take a nap? Um, are they able to cook and, and care for their home? Um, and for some patients, these were not things they did in the past, and so they're not great markers. But for others, you know, they took great pride in those things. Dr. Goldberg highlighted the vital role of primary care providers here as well. They're the eyes and the ears, um, and I think that they may notice subtle changes 
based on the relationship with the patient and the frequency of contact that may be harder for some of the subspecialists who may see the patient you know, twice a year um, and not be able to pick up on some of those subtle things. So if a patient is showing signs of worsening heart failure based on the physical exam and history, what tests can providers perform to confirm progression? According to Dr. Goldberg, the next step is to look at laboratory findings. And you're looking at changes in renal function, changes in sodium and electrolytes that we know are markers. And then we have the biomarkers that we use for heart failure. And so if you've been tracking them or have baselines and you see changes in natriuretic peptides or some of the other inflammatory markers, even a positive troponin in someone who's volume overloaded uh, has a lot of prognostic uh, information. So uh, checking labs and biomarkers is kind of the next step. What do natriuretic peptide and troponin levels indicate? Natriuretic peptides and cardiac troponin levels reflect ventricular diastolic wall stress and myocardial injury, respectively. They're both important biomarkers of prognosis and disease severity in heart failure, and elevated levels are associated with increased risk for morbidity and mortality. Are there other objective tests that providers can perform to assess clinical progression? Yes. If Dr. Goldberg suspects clinical progression based on his examination and laboratory findings, he will next order an echocardiogram. So all of these markers together, combined with a, a clinical story, uh, makes me concerned. So, you know, the appropriate use criteria for ordering echocardiograms, we're not doing them annually. We're doing them every two to three years. Uh, but these clinical changes really do demand further assessment. So that's when the echo I'm doing is actually clinically driven uh, because of a change in symptoms. I'm not doing the echo just because, but I am doing it because when I took a good history, I really felt like something had changed, and now I'm trying to correlate that with um, structural changes on the echo. In the echocardiogram, Dr. Goldberg assesses the degree of cardiac structural remodeling, as this is an important indicator of heart failure progression and risk for adverse outcomes. Here are some of the things that Dr. Goldberg looks for. Is the heart more dilated? Are there new wall motion abnormalities to suggest that there's been a new ischemic event? Uh, we're very interested in looking at the degree of mitral regurgitation or tricuspid regurgitation. Uh, so in the setting of worsening remodeling where the heart's dilating and stretching, I worry that the mitral valve's getting pulled apart and that there's additional mitral regurgitation and that in and of itself um, may worsen the heart failure symptoms. Okay, so let's delve a little deeper into the cardiac structural changes observed in heart failure. Heart failure involves myocardial remodeling that differs based on ejection fraction. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEF-REF, is primarily characterized by dilation of the left ventricle and ventricular wall thinning, whereas heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEF-PEF, is primarily characterized by thickening and stiffening of the left ventricle. Regardless of ejection fraction, guidelines recommend echocardiographic measurement of certain features that provide prognostic information in patients who have experienced a change in clinical status. What are some of these features? An important measurement in HEF-REF is left ventricular ejection fraction, which is independently associated with mortality risk. The lower the ejection fraction, the higher the risk for mortality. Well, what about HEF-PEF? 
A key measure in half-pef is atrial size. Left atrial enlargement is a defining feature of HEFPEF and is associated with increased risk for hospitalization and mortality in HEFPEF. And are there any other features providers should be aware of? As Dr. Goldberg mentioned, mitral regurgitation should also be evaluated. Dilation of the left ventricle or left atrium can cause secondary mitral regurgitation in HEFREF and HEFPEF. Mitral regurgitation is an independent predictor of mortality in patients with HEPREF. So let's say I'm a heart failure care provider, and based on my clinical, laboratory, and imaging assessments, I think my patient is progressing. What do I do now? In this case, Dr. Goldberg advises that progression be met with a change in approach. If they're progressing, um, I feel like it is an emergency. We have to do something. So if I ruled out the reversible things, uh, then chances are we're going to try to make a, an adjustment to their medications to see if we can prevent that remodeling from ongoing or at least arrest it in its, in its spot. And that may be changing drugs within the same class. It may be trying a different class of drugs. It may be titrating up meds that they've already been on to a higher dose. Um, it may be doubling down on lifestyle changes and exercise, and it may be identifying sleep apnea and making sure that they're appropriately screened, even though you may have done that years ago, uh, but looking for anything that you can do to kind of tilt uh, the scale in their favor in terms of preventing worsening negative remodeling. To assist in optimization of guideline-directed therapies for heart failure, the American College of Cardiology released an expert consensus decision pathway on this topic in 2017. The pathway provides recommendations for initiating guideline-directed medical therapies and titrating to target doses. Importantly, while worsening disease should motivate a change in care, providers should not wait for a clinical progression to optimize therapy. I find that most of the patients that are referred to me that are, are struggling, um, many times they went for a long time undertreated, meaning they were just fine on you know one or two of the agents, and so no one no one did anything, and then their heart failure progressed, and then additional agents needed to be added, and then they come to me, and I always wonder had they been on all of those meds early on in their course, would that have changed naturally, or at least delayed the time that they needed to come to advanced therapy? This highlights an important issue in heart failure management. A recent large registry study of patients with HEFREF found notable gaps in optimal treatment. Only 61% of patients who were eligible for renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system antagonists received them, and 11% received target doses, although over 80% of patients eligible for beta blockers received them. Only about 19% received target doses. Wow! Those numbers are really striking. They are, especially when you consider the benefits of guideline-directed medical therapies on cardiac remodeling. There is evidence that these therapies promote reverse remodeling of the heart. Here's Dr. Goldberg. One of the exciting things about being a heart failure cardiologist is that, you know, good medical management, good device therapy, uh, lifestyle changes, we see the heart remodel in a positive way. So it doesn't always have to be negative remodeling, meaning more dilatation, weakening heart muscle. But many of our patients, their ejection fractions come up. Their heart sizes get smaller. The degree of mitral regurgitation without any intervention on the valve directly gets less. That definitely seems like sufficient motivation to optimize therapy. 
I agree. And Dr. Goldberg reiterated the key role that primary care providers play in optimizing heart failure care and provided some advice for management in the primary care setting. I think it's focusing on things that primary care docs are actually really good at doing, which is taking good histories and knowing the families and leveraging those relationships to really understand what's going on, not in the office, but actually when patients are are home and their regular activities. I think it's not being afraid to titrate up the meds or mix them. I would argue that they shouldn't be afraid to partner with someone that they trust in the cardiology space. Um, who can shepherd the patient through devices and other interventions and, and diagnostics that really do require the subspecialty input. Um, and so that there's a partnership between the primary care doc and whomever they have in their local cardiology community um, who can provide those services. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of the clinical progression of heart failure. Ava, what are your key takeaways? Today, we learned that heart failure is a progressive syndrome that requires consistent monitoring for worsening severity via patient history, physical exam, laboratory tests, and imaging. Optimization of therapy should be attempted in all eligible patients regardless of worsening. Here's Dr. Goldberg with some final thoughts. I think that one one parting thing that I would leave people with is that um, it you know the the tone that we set as clinicians with our patients and families really do matter. So I you know I recognize that I'm asking patients to take very complex medical regimens or make major changes uh, to their lifestyle. And if I if I come in the room and I'm kind of rolling my eyes and I'm saying oh this is so many pills that you have to take, I think that 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 sets the tone for patients and families. On the other hand, if I say we're going to help you control this disease. You can own it. You can control it. Let me help you. But in order to do that, these are the steps that we have to do together. Um, so setting that positive tone um, and recognizing that it's going to be a complex regimen, but that our data are so strong that it it really does improve quality of life and it does change the natural history of the disease, not being afraid to kind of dive into that. And I, as scary as it seems to patients and families, We've made remarkable change in natural history of a disease. Um, And so we shouldn't be afraid to use all those therapies and be positive with our patients around them. Thank you for listening to CV Deep Dive. I'm Dennis Steele. And I'm Ava Parker. And we hope you'll join us again. This podcast was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and the speakers were compensated for their time. The statements in this podcast reflect the medical expertise and opinions of the presenters.